Well, we're now going to pick up our Bible reading from chapter 18 and read 18 and 19. And it says this. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord... Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, Before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. 
Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you, call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one of bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped round the altar that they'd made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep, and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran round the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones, the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook, Kishon, and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of the Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. He went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud 
like a man's hand is riding, rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. There was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha uh, Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. 
And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Well, in a minute we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, there's just a couple of things to mention. The first is question time. You know it's coming. There's going to be an opportunity to ask questions, so do bear that in mind. There's the sermon outlines, which may be useful to you or may not be, and it's up to you to decide which way you go. Without further ado, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the remarkable things that you've done before your prophets. We thank you for their steadfastness. And we pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, we might know you better and be ever-increasing in our confidence that your plan and purpose cannot and will not be thwarted. Amen. Okay, right, I'm going to begin the sermon in a minute, but before we begin... I want to have a quick think about something. So in Mark 9, we read of how Jesus takes Peter, James and John up a high mountain, at which point Jesus' clothes become a radiant and intense white. It's known as, as the transfiguration. At this point, Elijah and Moses, they appear and they speak to Jesus. Now, the question that I've always had is, why is it Moses and Elijah? Could it equally have been Abraham and David? They are two extremely significant characters from the Old Testament. But it wasn't them. It was Moses and Elijah. Many people say it's because Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. That might be true. But if that's true, I still don't understand the significance. You know, I'm going to need a little more convincing if I'm going to understand the significance of the law and the prophets and why they need to be represented at the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, just to manage expectations, I'm not sure we're going to have an answer to this question by the end of the sermon. Though, we may do. But why I mention it is because I think that what we'll consider today is going to contribute to the discussion around this question. So by introducing that question to you now, you can have it in the back of your minds as we explore today's passage. We still haven't begun yet. Now we're going to begin. I've just got extra 100 words in there. No one noticed. (laughs) Okay. How do you explain the drought? Well, you think the drought was self-explanatory. Surely it was plain for all to see. The people worshipped Baal. 
And so, as a consequence, God kept the rain from falling. But of course, life is never as simple as it appears. Baal is the God of nature. And he's the one responsible for the rain. So actually, is it Elijah that's brought the trouble upon Israel? Elijah's hostility has made Baal angry. Hence, the foolproof explanation for the drought. It's Baal that's kept the water back because he is unhappy with Elijah. Maybe the answer isn't as plain as we first thought. The signs are there to be seen and to be understood. But maybe it isn't quite so easy to understand what's really going on. Maybe it would have been better had God chosen something other than a drought to make his point. Has God's drought just caused unnecessary confusion? Or has God got a good reason to choose a drought over other alternatives? Now, on Kings, it is now going to pause at Ahab. If you remember last week, we covered six kings of Israel, and that isn't even to mention the kings we covered from Judah. And we covered those six kings in two chapters. But in today's passage, three chapters are dedicated to a detailed look at Ahab. And in fact, Ahab's account won't be complete until chapter 22. That is six chapters in total. What we know about Ahab, we find in 1 Kings 16, verse 33. Ahab made an Asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Under Ahab and his wife Jezebel, Israel become completely Canaanized. They fully embrace the gods of nature that the people of Canaan followed. And Ahab's nemesis is the prophet Elijah. And at the very beginning of today's passage, Elijah announces God's drought to Ahab. And immediately after, uh, God tells Elijah to hide. During this time, God provides for Elijah's needs. We see it first at the brook, where he has water, and God commands the ravens to bring bread and meat. Once the brook dries up, God then sends Elijah to the widow of Zarephath. Now, it's worth highlighting that Zarephath is a Phoenician city. It's worth also pointing out that Jezebel is a Phoenician princess. The very same Jezebel that's married to Ahab. Elijah is in Baal's home territory. And that's where God has sent Elijah to find sanctuary. 
Elijah finds the, win, uh, the widow that God told him to seek out. And, of course, Baal is unable to help her. So she's preparing a last meal for herself and her son. And Elijah has her first bring him food. And only then, once he has fed, provide for her and her son. But he does this with a promise that they will never run out of oil and flour. The widow agrees, and as a result, her flour and oil last. God demonstrates his power in a land that apparently belongs to Baal. But of course, living in such close proximity to a man of God, has its risks. And so when her son dies, she assumes it's due to a past forgotten sin. But however, once Elijah raises her son, she recognises, I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So what we begin to see is as God provides for Elijah in the land of Baal, it brings Elijah the confidence that he will need to take on Ahab, the priests of Baal, and Baal himself. Elijah has seen God's mighty acts. He's got to know what God is capable of. When Elijah challenges the priests of Baal, he intends that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you've turned their hearts back. And the events at Mount Carmel leave all the witnesses beyond doubt. They confess that Baal does not exist, while God is the heavens, is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That's the sentiment their confession. They're even happy to follow Elijah's instructions. They seize the prophets of Baal who are then slaughtered. However, Jezebel won't be convinced. And in a matter of seconds, Ahab has told Jezebel all that happened and all the hard work has been undone. Jezebel has vowed to kill Elijah. And Elijah flees in despair. Now it's at this point when we reach chapter 19 that commentators begin to make various comparisons between Moses and Elijah. First, have a look halfway through verse 4. So chapter 19, verse 4. I'll just read it from the start. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. 
Now, in the first instance, when we read this, we might remember Moses making a similar request. It happens back in Numbers 11, verses 14 to 15. He says, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favour in your sight, that I might not see my wretchedness. So in this comparison, the two characters are alike. But other commentators, they make a contrast between Elijah and Moses. So after the idolatry of the golden calf, God is ready to destroy the whole of Israel and make a great nation of Moses. That's in Exodus 32, verse 10. But Moses appeals to the Abrahamic covenant that God has made. Then later on in 32, verse 32 of Exodus, Moses says, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. And so we have a contrast. Elijah is in despair. He wishes his life be taken from him. While Moses presents his life as a sacrifice on behalf of those who've brought despair upon themselves. Now there are other commentators. They present the possibility that when Elijah arrives at Mount Sinai, he does so as the only prophet left, the only one left. This may remind us of what we've said a moment ago, of what God says he will do to Moses. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So that's what God suggests he will do to Moses. But is this what Elijah expects God will do for him? Is Elijah anticipating that God is going to destroy Israel and start again with him? Since in the despair of Israel's rebellion, Elijah is the only one left. So what we have is this contrast between Moses and Elijah. They both see God's people turn from him to idolatry. They both find themselves in despair. But Moses' response to that despair is to die in the place of his people to remove their despair. Whereas Elijah wallows in his misery of the situation and wishes his life will be taken from him in order to escape the despair. Now in each point of each of their accounts, both Moses and Elijah, they receive a revelation of God. The message that Moses receives is that God has sovereign freedom 
It's that well-known phrase that we'll all recognize from Exodus 33, verse 19, where God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now this revelation that Moses has takes place at Mount Sinai, which is the very same place that Elijah has now come to, although it's called here Mount Horeb. But Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are one in the same. So when Elijah is at Mount Sinai, what he receives is a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, many people assume that the question means Elijah shouldn't be there. But that might be a little bit unfair. If you look back in verse 7 of chapter 19, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So there, at least there's some suggestion, because it's the angel who's provided food for the journey, suggesting he is meant to be going to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. What comes next seems to suggest the reason Elijah is there isn't so much to do with what he needs to hear, but what he needs not to hear. you remember as we read it out, there was a wind. The wind was followed with an earthquake. The earthquake was followed by fire. But in each occasion it says God was not there. God does not speak. And the only thing that Elijah hears is, now if you have a look at chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 19, it says, and after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. You should have a little number one. And the little number one takes you down to uh, your footnote, which says a thin silence. So whatever we are hearing here, is, is it a very faint whisper? Is it a thin silence? Elijah hears nothing. Now, the reason behind all this silence is because the revelation God gave to Moses still stands. Nothing's changed. There's nothing more to add. There is no new revelation. And that's the reason Elijah is there. And that's why God asks the question again. The very reason Elijah is there is to hear nothing. Because there's nothing new. Because God hasn't changed. And so God will continue to keep the promises he's made at the beginning... And he will continue to fulfill his promises to Israel. 
And he will do these things through the same sovereign freedom that God has revealed to Moses. And through God's sovereign freedom, God has kept 7,000 prophets that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. When God's people are at their worst, when they turn from him and embrace the golden calf or the nation's idols, it may seem that all is lost. But the reality is, God is who he says he is. His plan and purpose is based upon his own sovereign freedom to forgive those he chooses. So, to bring this and tie this all together, when Moses stood before God, he did so in despair, for all was lost. The people were guilty from turning from God and worshipping an idol. But all wasn't lost. And Moses saw the glory of the Lord pass before him and he saw, and what he saw was that it's God's prerogative to forgive whoever he chooses. When Elijah stood before God, he did so in despair for all was lost. The people of God had committed a great apostasy. They turned from God and worshipped Baal. But all wasn't lost. And we know all wasn't lost precisely because Elijah heard what he needed to hear. Nothing. Because the word had already been spoken, it's God's prerogative to forgive whoever he chooses. And God does not change. When Jesus stands before God and is installed as God's chosen king, on that occasion he's joined by both Moses and Elijah. And as Jesus speaks to Moses and Elijah, the disciples are oblivious to the fact that they are about to see the greatest apostasy of all. The people of Israel are about to reject God's king. They will hand him over to Gentiles. They'll call for their God's chosen Messiah to be hung from a tree. At which point all hope will appear to be gone. Could it be that Moses's and Elijah's presence signifies that the people of God have been here before. There's been a failure of God's people to know him and they've turned from him to idols. There have been times when all seemed lost. It has seemed that God's plan has come to an end because of the behaviour of his own people. Yet when those things happen, we're reminded of what God has said. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, 
and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So maybe Moses and Elijah's presence with Jesus when he becomes king is to bring to mind that when the wickedness of God's own people is at its greatest, far from compromising God's plan and purpose, it actually is God's plan and purpose. Because such is the graciousness of God that through the greatest act of apostasy, God achieves the very means by which God can declare the sinner forgiven. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God who has not changed. You are the same today, and you are the same as you were before, and you'll always be the same. And therefore, those truths that we learned so many moons ago, we can apply now. We pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to know that the anxieties of Moses and Elijah and even those of the disciples as they see their Saviour be carried away should give us a great encouragement to know that when all appears to be lost, actually your plan and purpose is coming to fruition. So we pray, Lord, as we live in a world that seems completely against you, that seems to have forgotten your name and your mighty acts, that covers any hint of your son being spoken of, that actually we know is at these times when you work your plan and purpose out. Amen. Okay then, questions, comments, thoughts? Or simply a moment to try and work out what, what have I been talking about? Is that your hand, Henry? Henry, have you got a question? <laughs> got the right answers.
Yes, Ricky. Yes, um, so just for the recording, um, so it's just a question revolving around Moses' desire to lay down his life for the people compared with Elijah's, he just wants out and he just wants to be dead so he can be free from the despair. So how are we to think about that? Does that make Moses a better prophet than Elijah or um, what's kind of happened there? Yeah, I think it's quite... Interesting. I mean, I think one of the things, as we see things unfold, is that we see things unfold. So, I've never heard anyone say this, I don't think, and I don't think I've read it anywhere, but I think when God says to, G, uh, to Moses, um, let me destroy Israel and then make a great nation through you. Let me just read it so we've got it as it says. So this is Exodus 32, verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, in one sense, that just doesn't work, does it? And I think that's part of what Moses says, They've, God has rescued Israel. It's through Israel that the prophets are there. And I mean, Moses is from Israel, so I guess from that sense, it's still through Israel. Um, but obviously the reason he can do that is because Moses hasn't been involved in the sin. He's been up the mountain while they've been sinning and creating apostasy. He's the, he's the one who's remained faithful while the others have not been faithful. And so at that point, I think you can start to see something of a Christological theme. You know, there's a sense in that when you get to Jesus, there is Jesus and the Twelve, but Jesus keeps telling the Twelve when they come you, when the shepherd is taken away, the sheep will scatter. It's not quite that Israel is destroyed, but Israel have dispersed, and the remnant ends up reduced to one. It's only then that he dies, at which point it's through him that the people, you know, the disciples come back, and then it goes out. So you've got this kind of like um, a egg timer shape, where you've got Israel reduced to one and then from them the disciples and then it goes in the, into the many 
nations. I guess it's probably like that. Now it looks very... Yeah, I just need to stop doing that. <laughs> um, so you've got that. And then you've got this other thing, and it actually comes a little bit later in verse 33. Oh, sorry, in chapter 33. Where it talks about the whole... Forgive them, but if not, blot me out. And again, you've got this imagery where you think, hang on, this sounds intriguing. There's a Christological theme here because it's anticipating the day where there is one that will be able to be blotted out, if you like. Um, And then, I mean, it's interesting, I think, the commentators are making all these connections. It's hard to know which ones to run with or which ones just... Again, I don't think it's hard and fast, but the sense that Elijah then turns up and says, I'm the only one left. There's a sense in that, is he saying, I'm the only one left, do what you promised to Moses? Which kind of brings that theme back up, the theme that kind of was lost back in... Back in um, Exodus 32, it's a reminder that actually God said that's what he would do, but it was only a fleeting statement. But then Elijah seems to be saying, I'm the only one left, why don't you effectively do that through me? And so he brings that theme back up. But also there's that reminder of the frustration that Moses felt in Numbers 11 when he was there and he was saying, I can't bear the burden of these people, so kill me. So I think as I've been thinking about it this week, I'm kind of reluctant to think in terms of that sort of, you know, and I'm sure we all are that sort of like, which is the better prophet, you know, who made the better decisions. But all the time as they do what they do, whether it's for the good or for the bad, they are pointing to the greater one who will come later. So... Again, it's one of those, I think, almost when you start to spell it out, it starts to look a bit mm, a bit clumsy. But it's those sorts of illusions that go on in your head as you read these things that makes you think, oh, there's a kind of a Christological theme going on here. And it's sort of like they're sort of coming and going and moving back and forth and in, they're intertwining and moving away and that sort of thing. Have I engaged with your question at all? You're thinking, what's he talking about? Possibly, yeah, but it's only a hint. There's, you know, again, I don't. If if you start pushing it too hard, it feels a little bit like forced. Um, well, interesting. We're going to look at something in in a minute. Because the other thing as well, I guess Elijah's got a connection to John the Baptist, haven't we? Which 
again, that's one of those things where you're just a bit like, how did that come about? How do those work? You know, you've got all of a sudden Elijah's going to come, and then John the Baptist comes, and everyone thinks he's Elijah. And why is he Elijah? And how is the. So I guess there's both the, the, those Christological themes, but I guess there's a John the Baptist thing going on as well. At which point I'm probably, I've not thought too much about this because, I mean, this has been a bit of a roller coaster week for me because this is all quite fresh and new and stuff I've not come across before. Um, but hopefully we've made some progress. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh, I know there was a big long delay before anyone asked a question, but it's not normally when you've run out of questions, you're just looking at me as if to say, come on then, let's sing the next song. But you were, you were all looking down, looking at your notes and reading. So I was thinking. Go on, Nikki. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I, it's kind of one of those things I kind of almost included in, but just had so much to say, so definitely, yeah. Um, and, and this is the... Well, let, let's just... Oh, I've lost it now. I just had it and then I lost it. So, so, yeah, reading from verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So you've got this idea. I mean, this is in the context of Jesus being re rejected at Nazareth, which is his hometown. So he says, well, this has happened before. If you go back to Elijah, he wasn't even in Israel. He had to flee Israel because he was, they didn't want to know. But then he ministered to the woman of Zarephath. And, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the purpose he's been sent there is because God's commanded the widow to provide for him. But again, you've got this. It's almost like going back to Genesis 12 and the blessing and curses thing. If you bless the people, Abraham, you will be blessed which is what, precisely what she does. She presents him with food before her home fa own family. And in doing so, she has enough food to get through the famine. But Israel, who could be benefiting from this blessing, are just in a 
the, the midst of a drought because they haven't blessed Elijah, God's representative. And now Jesus is here in his hometown. Are they going to bless Jesus? Because if they do, they will be blessed. But ultimately, they curse him. So there's, an, there's an awful lot going on there. You start to think, is this anticipating the day when the Gentiles will be blessed and you know, you're kind of back in that sort of Romans 9 to 11 sort of thing. Or that sense of, you know, it is. But then, in one sense, Jesus comes and the idea is that Israel doesn't because they, they need to kill him because that's where it will come out to the Gentiles. But ultimately, there's that challenge there of, I mean, one of the things Jesus is simply saying is this, is, this has happened before. This is, I mean, this is just typical behavior of um, Israel. Anyone got another pressing question? Or should we move on? I really, I guess I would say, what I was trying to suggest at the start was, this is me just putting these things together and it's kind of like a bit of a work in progress. So I wanted to let you in on what I was thinking, see my work in, so you could be on the journey with me but like I say, it's not. Don't feel like it's quite landed. Maybe, well, maybe it has. But yeah, it feels like there's a bit more work to be done. But obviously, I didn't have a run out of time, so I had to come. I'd, yes. Uh, oh, we've got Susie and Mackie. Go on, Susie, you first, and then Mackie. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Because, I mean, I think it's fascinating when you think about Elijah because obviously you get this thing in Malachi where it's like, behold, I will send Elijah the prophet. And you're like, blimey, Elijah's significant, isn't he? And of course, we, well, I won't say what's going to happen to Elijah because that's, that's all to come. But um, then Elijah, is, it, he does feature a lot in the New Testament. He's, he is the John... John the Baptist is the Elijah figure. And then when you actually get to it, you think, man alive, it's not like Elijah's got his own book, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or, or Ezekiel. Um, he kind of, yeah, he, he just sort of arrives and it's like, whoa, wh where did he come from? Because he, he, I, th I think I'm not wrong in saying that 17 verse 1 is the first introduction to Elijah. I don't think he comes before. Um, and he, he just sort of hits the ground running. And so, I mean, you, you see in his actions, he must have this authority. And, God's, and obviously, the authority he has comes from God. Um, he's recognized by, well, I mean, I don't know when the first time Ahab sees him. It's the first time Ahab sees him is when he mentions the drought. But again, the power of a prophet's word comes about if he speaks it and it happens. Well, this man, this prophet's word and that effectively what a woman says, isn't it? Um, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true because when you speak, what you say happens. So I think 
we, we almost have this rushed introduction to Elijah, and you're like, I kind of like almost missed that because it was so fast and so quick, but whoa, yeah, this guy has authority. But then, yeah, obviously, within a few chapters, he's going to be gone again. Mackie? Yeah, that's an, yeah, an interesting point. I mean, interestingly, I think one of the guys, one of the commentators sort of toys with the idea of should we see Elijah and Jonah and is there an overlap there? But he kind of starts to explore it and then sort of steps back because it feels like something slightly different going on there. But, but yeah, but ne nevertheless, I mean, this is, there is, there's a sim I guess there is a similar despair there, isn't there? But it kind of comes from a different angle. But yeah, definitely. Okay, let's move on because time is going to escape us otherwise. Uh, we're going to stand and sing Two Sins. <laughs> 